Welcome to the Fairfax Church Podcast. We're a community in Fairfax, Virginia, following Jesus. We upload new messages every week, and to learn more about us, visit us at fairfax.cc. Enjoy the message. We're starting a new series uh, this week. It's a seven-week Lenten series. It's going to culminate uh, on, bapti- uh, uh, on Easter. Uh, we're going to do baptisms on Easter. It's going to be an amazing Easter celebration for us. Uh, it's a seven-week series that is focused on one of our core values. Our core values are pray, give, invite, mentor, and serve. And the core value of invitation is this idea that we are called to be an invitational community. We are called to invite others into our lives, into our homes, uh, into our community, and into a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's just one of our core values as a church. The series is called Go and Tell. And uh, if you want to dig a little deeper into what we're going to be talking about before I jump into all of it, if you want to dig a little deeper, and we'll have uh, this up somewhere on our website where you can find it if, if I go uh, through it too fast. But uh, if you want to connect with some of the things we're going to be talking about, go a little deeper in that. Uh, there's a number of ways that you can do it. You can check out a series by John Mark Comer. A lot of you are, are fans of John Mark Comer. It's a series that's called Preach the Gospel, and it kind of provided the framework for this series and, one, and kind of the main resource for the series but then there's some books that you can check out as well. I just mentioned four. Um, one is by N.T. Wright uh, called Simply Good News. And the other one is, is by uh, Rosaria Butterfield. I love the name of it. I love the title of this. The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And uh, it's focused on hosp- focusing on hospitality and all of that. A book by Tim Keller that's called How to Reach the West Again. And a book by John Ortberg that's called Eternity is Now in Session. So uh, four great resources that you can check out as well that uh, align with kind of what it is that we're talking about during this series. Now, when you get to the end of all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, get to the end of all four of the Gospels, Jesus challenges his followers with the same message. He challenges them uh, to go and to tell. To go and tell what they have witnessed, to go and tell others uh, the gospel story, to go and tell others what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, to go and to tell. And uh, each of the gospels, uh, Jesus says it in four different ways that basically he's saying the same thing. I just want to remind you of how each of the four gospels end. So in Matthew, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And then in Mark, Mark, which is the shortest of the gospels, and Mark just kind of gets to the point. uh, In Mark, Jesus says, go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. And then in Luke, Jesus says, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem and you are witnesses of these things. And then some of you are aware that Luke actually, it's kind of a two-part gospel. Luke, the actual gospel of Luke is like part one 
Part two is Acts, which Luke also wrote. And in part two, kind of of Luke's gospel in Acts, Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then in John, Jesus simply says, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you into the world. So it's four different ways of saying basically the same thing. Go and tell others about this gospel message of Jesus Christ. Now, the idea, and I recognize this, and this is why we're going to spend seven weeks on it, and we're going to flesh it out in a lot of different ways and talk about um, this from a lot of different angles, uh, because I know that the idea of talking to other people about your faith can be really scary at times, it can be really uncomfortable at times, it can maybe feel awkward at times, all of that. And in fact, in our pluralistic culture, evangelism has kind of become a trigger word for a lot of people. Evangelism is often viewed as like a bad thing. Uh, it's viewed as not being maybe respectful of other people's beliefs and other people's belief systems or being too pushy or not being sensitive enough. And some of that is actually uh, justified. I mean, it's justified not because evangelism is bad, but because the way in which we have gone about evangelizing sometimes has been bad. Uh, colonialism, for instance, at times used evangelism as a way to justify economic gain and gain political control and power. Uh, sometimes we've turned evangelism into basically pray a prayer, get your ticket punched for heaven, and then live your life however you want to live your life. Or we've turned evangelism into some kind of uh, sales gimmick. And there's all kind, like... Uh, History is littered with different kind of sales gimmicks uh, in terms of the gospel. Uh, one uh, that my dad actually did at times, and then he repented of it later, uh, was that uh, you, you leave a, what, looks like, what looks like a $100 bill on the sidewalk. You, you know what I'm talking about? Like a $100 bill on the sidewalk, uh, and then people pick up. The $100 bill, what they think is a $100 bill, they're super, super excited, and then they find out it's not a $100 bill, it is a gospel track. Uh, it's about Jesus, which basically just ticks people off about the gospel and is disappointing to them. Or we've turned evangelism into something where you stand on a street corner and you yell at people rather than entering into meaningful conversations with people or we've made evangelism all about talking and not listening and not really hearing. I mean, there's lots of things. And all of this has caused some Christians to either just avoid evangelism um, altogether. Usually, we always like to spiritualize whatever it is that we're doing, like as a church and as Christians. So we got to spiritualize. So we, we always say things like, well, it's not my gift. Like, it's someone else's gift or whatever. You know, like we just, but, but, it, but basically, it's just like, yeah, I'm just not going to do that. So we avoid it altogether. Or we turn evangelism into just doing loving things, like really loving things, good things, loving things for people and hoping that they will somehow 
just magically figure out that Jesus is the Lord of the universe. Like somehow they'll connect the dots between us loving them and the fact that Jesus is Lord of the world, of the universe. But the reality is that the reason all of us are here today is because someone in our life or someones in our life cared about us enough, loved us enough uh, to tell us about Jesus. That's why I'm here. That's why I'm a pastor. That's why I'm doing what I'm doing. Uh, that's why you're here. That's why those who are online, who are uh, a part of the, like, if you're checking this out, it's because someone in your life has loved you enough, has cared enough about you to tell you about Jesus. Maybe it was your mom or your dad or another family member or a friend or a pastor or a youth pastor or a youth leader or a co-worker or an author that you read or an artist that you listened to or whoever it was or maybe it's someone else but someone, someone, someone was courageous enough, someone, someone cared enough about you, loved you enough to um, communicate in whatever way that they could and maybe it was very limited but to communicate with you what the gospel is all about and to invite you in some way to say yes to that. All of us, all of us have folks that have impacted our lives in that way. The Bible says, we talked about this last week, so this is kind of a great jumping point. Last week was a great kind of jumping off point to what we're going to be talking about for the, last, the next seven weeks. The Bible says that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And we talked about that last week. We talked about the three parables that Jesus told to illustrate that. The parable of a lost sheep, the parable of a lost coin, and the parable of two, not just one, but two lost sons. And all of us deal at some level with a certain sense of lostness in our lives. Like wherever we are, uh, whether we're, um, you know, well off economically, not well off economically, at a low point in our life, high point in our life. All, all of us deal with a certain sense of lostness in our lives. And you don't have to be someone whose life is falling apart to experience being lost. You can be incredibly successful. You can have a great job. You can be well educated. You can have lots of money. You can actually be having a really great time in life and still and still there is this sense of lostness, this sense that something is missing. In fact, when Jesus declared that he had come to seek and save the lost, the man that he was talking to, when he says, I came to seek and save the lost, the man that he was talking to at that time, the man that he was hanging out with, was a rich, successful businessman with cultural influence and cultural power. Now, when Jesus' earthly ministry was coming to a close, he made sure that all of his disciples, all the people that were following him, understood that his mission to seek and save the lost was going to continue, and the way it was going to continue is it was going to continue through them. It was going to continue through us. And why is that so important to understand? Because every generation is responsible for sharing the gospel 
with the next generation. Like that's our primary responsibility is to share the gospel with the next generation. There is no, <laughs> this, I know this doesn't need to be said, but sometimes we act like this is the case. There is no gospel gene that just automatically gets passed down to the next generation. There is no gospel gene that just automatically gets passed down to our kids or automatically gets passed down to our grandkids. The gospel has to be shared. And we are, we are only one generation away from the gospel having absolutely no relevance in people's lives. And we see cultures throughout history where that has become the case. And, and you know, just looking at what's kind of going on in our culture like, you don't have to, like, be paying that much attention even to realize that there is this growing sense of irrelevance that is, is circling around the gospel. And, and that's just reality. We are one generation, one generation away from the gospel having absolutely no relevance in people's lives. And that's why Paul says in Romans 10, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on the one that they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them or sharing with them? And how can they preach or share unless they are sent? As, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring Good news. And that last part of the passage in Romans, Paul is actually quoting the prophet Isaiah, where Isaiah says in, in chapter 52, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. So, if every generation is, is uh, or if, if every generation, there's just like we're just one generation away from the gospel being irrelevant. And if we have been entrusted by Jesus to carry out his mission to seek and save the lost, and we are the instruments that he has chosen to do that, then it's like super important that we really understand what the gospel is and what the gospel is all about. Because the gospel may be way, way bigger and way more comprehensive than, than maybe even you think. E even if you were raised in the church, the gospel may be way bigger, way more comprehensive than you think. All the way back to the time when they were written, the church has always referred to the writings of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John as the gospels. We talk about the gospel of Matthew, or the gospel according to Matthew, or the gospel according to Mark, or the gospel according to Luke, or the gospel according to John. Which is why the writer and theologian Scott McKnight says, and I know this sounds simple and maybe even redundant, but it's not. He says, the gospels are the gospel. The gospels are the gospel. Now, what McKnight is saying is that everything, everything, everything from Matthew 1 to the end of the Gospel of John, all of it, 
Everything that Jesus taught, everything that Jesus said, everything that Jesus did, all of it is the gospel. The gospels are the gospel. Which means that you can't pick and choose. It means that you can't say the gospel is just about what's at the end of Matthew or Mark or Luke or John, but it's not all the stuff that comes before that. Or you can't say the gospel is just about what Jesus did, but it's not about what Jesus taught. Like all of it is the gospel. The gospels are the gospel. And if we're not willing, if we're, if we're unwilling to embrace everything that Jesus taught and everything that Jesus did, then we turn the gospel into our own little version of the gospel. And that's what so often happens to to, to followers of Jesus, well-meaning followers of Jesus, is that we truncate the gospel. Like we, we uh, diminish the gospel. We turn the gospel into just like our version of the gospel. And it becomes our little version of the gospel rather than all of the gospel. The word gospel in Greek is euangelion. And as most of you, or maybe many of you know, that literally means good news. Gospel means good news. It's a word from which we get uh, our word evangelism. So when we say evangelism, it comes from the word gospel, the word euangelion. But in the first century, here's what's interesting. In the first century, the term gospel, it's not a religious term, not a church term. It wasn't started, the, the term euangelion, the term gospel wasn't started by Jesus. It wasn't started by the church. In fact, in the first century, the term was most commonly associated with a political figure, a political leader. So specifically, it was associated with Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus was the Roman Empire, emperor who won some huge military victories uh, in what was essentially a, a kind of a civil war and, and brought the Roman Empire together. And those victories led to a period of about 200 years in which there was peace throughout the whole Roman Empire. Empire. And a lot of you know the history of that. It was commonly referred to as the Pax Romana or the Peace of Rome. Or it, was, it, was, it was also called the Pax uh, Augusta, the peace of Augustus. Um, and Caesar Augustus was not just viewed as a political leader. He was viewed as more than even human. He was viewed as a kind of God. He was often called the Son of God. He was called Lord and Savior. He was called the Prince of Peace because he was the one that had brought peace to the Roman Empire. He was referred to in all of those terms. And here's what I think is just absolutely fascinating, is that Caesar Augustus sent out evangelists, preachers, to all of the, all of the farthest reaches of the Roman Empire to spread his euangelion, to spread his good news about himself. To spread the good news, the gospel about him, the good news about, about what he had done, what he had accomplished. And these evangelists, these, these preachers, 
declared that Caesar Augustus, they declared that he saved the empire. They declared that he brought peace, that he's the son of God, that he is our Lord, that he is our savior, that he came to rescue, rescue and deliver us from our enemies and usher in a worldwide era of peace and justice. And then this is fascinating as well. The enemies of Caesar Augustus, who were on the other side of the Civil War, the side that lost, they had to decide if they were willing to repent and believe the evangelists and what the evangelists were preaching or if they were going to reject it. Now think about that. It's into that context, that first century context, that Jesus comes proclaiming his euangelion, comes proclaiming his good news, comes proclaiming the gospel. And Jesus summarizes this good news right at the very, very beginning of Mark's gospel. Mark says it this way, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, Jesus said. The kingdom of God is near, so repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe the euangelion. Repent and believe the gospel. Now, let's just kind of spend the rest of our time today um, unpacking that verse. First of all, when Jesus says, the time has come. The time has come. He is saying that this is what they had been waiting on for all of these all of these centuries. This is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament promises. This is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament prophecies. Um, the kingdom of God, the place where God rules, the place where God reigns has finally come. It has arrived. It is available. It is accessible to, to everyone, to every person. Secondly, the core of Jesus' message about this gospel, like the core, the thing that's at the very center of this good news, at the very center of this euangelion, is the kingdom. The word kingdom is used 122 times in the four gospels. And 90 of those times, it's Jesus. It's in Jesus' mouth. Jesus is the one talking about the kingdom. And to really understand what the kingdom is all about, you have to go all the way back to Genesis. So I'm going to nerd out on you just a little bit today as we kind of set some context for this series. You have to go all the way back to the beginning of Genesis. I, I remember when I was at uh, the church that I was a youth pastor at in South Meridian, um, we, uh, our seminary was there, and we had a seminary student that preached one Sunday and he said, you know, they accuse seminarians of trying to preach too much, like of just trying to say too much in a sermon. And I totally understand that. Now, turn to Genesis 1-1 and let's get started. So, um, so it feels a little bit like that, like I'm having a little, fly, a little PTS, you know, deba uh, uh, flashback on that of just like, you know, I tell you to go to Genesis. So we'll, we'll go through this really quickly. So if you go all the way back, if you go all the way back to Genesis, God creates humanity in his image. He places them in the garden. And in the garden, he empowers the man and the woman to rule. 
They are to rule over all the other creatures that God has created. But God is to rule over them. They are to live, as we often say here at Fairfax, to live in the yes position to God. But they rebel against God's rule. They try to turn God's kingdom into their kingdom. They try to turn God's rule into their rule. And the result is not only their own brokenness, but brokenness in the world. And sometimes, um, sometimes we try to do the same thing that Adam and Eve did. Like we try and turn God's kingdom into our kingdom. Like how we steward our stuff becomes a part of our kingdom rather than a part of God's kingdom. How we steward our time becomes a part of our kingdom rather than a part of God's kingdom. How we steward our finances becomes a part of our kingdom rather than a part of God's kingdom. How we steward our sexuality becomes a part of our kingdom rather than a part of God's kingdom. And the list just kind of goes on and on. Now, as you continue in the Old Testament narrative, we see God call Abraham to be the father of a new nation, a new kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. And this new nation, this new kingdom, is to be a place just like in the garden, just like in the garden where God is king, where God rules over them. They are to live in the yes position to God. But over and over again, if you are familiar at all with the Old Testament narrative, over and over again, Israel does the same thing that Adam and Eve did. They rebel against God's rule and they try to turn God's kingdom into their kingdom. They try to turn God's rule into their rule. And whenever that happens, they, they get into trouble. And you just see this, like this is basically a summary of the whole Old Testament. Is that basically you see this over and over again. They get into trouble, they're enemies because they try to turn God's kingdom into their kingdom, God's rule into their rule. And they get into trouble, their enemies overrun them, and then they cry out to God to save them. And God raises up a savior, uh, a messiah, a king, usually it's a military figure or a political figure, and God uses that military figure, that political figure to save them. And through this savior, through this messiah, God defeats their enemies, and Israel promises to never, ever, ever do that again. Does that sound familiar? Any of you have kids, okay? Like, we will never, ever do that. That's, that's with us as well. We will never do that again. Like, we promise we will never do that again. But they do. They do. This, again, this is the whole Old Testament. They do. And once again, they try to turn God's kingdom into their kingdom, and they try to turn God's rule into their rule, and they get in trouble again, and they cry out to God again, and God raises up a Savior again, a Messiah again, and saves them again. But the cycle just continues until eventually they end up in exile. And while this vicious cycle is going on, prophets like Isaiah began prophesying about another kind of savior. They began prophesying about another kind of Messiah, another kind of king, who is not going to establish a kingdom where it's there for a while and then it gets overrun by its enemies. That this king is going to establish a kingdom that never ends. This 
king is not just going to save Israel. This king is going to save the entire world. And the first century Jews were waiting, 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 waiting. They had read the prophecies. They had read Isaiah. They were waiting, waiting, waiting for this new king to come to usher in this new kingdom. And now Jesus shows up and says that this new kingdom that they've been waiting on, this new kingdom that is going to come, that this new kingdom has in fact come, that it has arrived. Not that it will come, but that it has come. It has arrived. It is available to them right now. It is accessible to them right now. Now that message to the first century Jews, for many of them, was very confusing because they are still under the occupation of Rome. They're still being politically and economically and physically oppressed. And they're wondering how could this kingdom already be here? How can it already be available? How can it already be accessible? How could it have already come? How is that possible? Because if the king has come, if the savior has come, if the Messiah has come and ushered in a new kingdom, then God would defeat the Romans the way he defeated their enemies in the past. But as you read through the gospel narratives, and we'll be talking about this in different forms throughout the series, as you read through the gospels, you realize that this is a different kind of king and this is a different kind of kingdom. It's a kingdom where the king doesn't defeat his enemies with an army, but instead dies for his enemies on a cross. It's a kingdom whose agenda is way bigger than defeating Rome. It's a kingdom where the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus has defeated the power of Satan and sin and death. Can I get an amen for that? It's a kingdom that has set us free to finally live the life that God has created us to live. This is not a king that looks like Julius. This is not a king that looks like Caesar Augustus. This is not a king that looks like Joe Biden. This is not a king that looks like Donald Trump. This is a king that looks like Jesus. This is not a kingdom that looks like Rome. This is not a kingdom that looks like the United States. This is a kingdom that looks like heaven. This is a kingdom that has come. It has arrived. It is accessible. But it is also a kingdom that is coming, that is not yet. Sometimes when we hear the words, the kingdom of God has come, the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is all around. We are just as confused when we hear that as the Jews were in the first century. Because we look at the world and we see all the realities of brokenness in the world, right? We see the political divides. We see the injustice. We see the abuse. We see the violence in the Middle East and Europe and Africa and here and basically every place on the face of the planet and we wonder how could God's kingdom have come 
And that's because this kingdom is now, but it's also not yet. It's come, but it's also coming. It's a present reality, but it's also a future reality. And all of history is rushing toward its conclusion in Jesus Christ. And we will never experience the kingdom in all of its fullness. Like we will experience glimpses of the kingdom. We will punch holes in the veil that separates heaven from earth so that God's kingdom can come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We will get glimpses of the kingdom. We will be a part of bringing about glimpses of the kingdom. We will experience the kingdom in measure, but we will never experience the kingdom in all of its fullness until Jesus returns. And lastly, Jesus reminds us of how we can experience this kingdom. Both now, this present kingdom that is available to us now, and in the future. He says that we experience it by repenting of our sins and believing the good news. That's how he ends this passage in Mark. Repent. And believe the good news. Repent and believe the good news. Now repentance isn't just about confessing our sins. Repentance is not just about admitting where we have failed and saying, I'm really sorry for that. To repent is to be willing to change our whole way of thinking, our whole way of thinking about God, our whole way of thinking about ourselves, our whole way of thinking about our behavior. Eugene Peterson puts it this way. He says, to repent is to rethink everything you think you know about who God is, who you are, and what the good life that you crave actually is. It's to put your trust and confidence in Jesus to heal you, to save you, to free you, and to lead you to the life that you ache for. To repent is to be willing to allow Jesus to be the Lord of our lives. It's it's being willing to turn away from our own kingdom (laughs) And allow Jesus to rule and reign in our lives. To allow, to embrace God's kingdom. To allow the king to rule and reign in our lives. And when we are willing to do that, we experience the kingdom of God in our lives. We experience the reign of God in our lives. We experience the rule of God in our lives. A kingdom where God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. A kingdom where the last are first and the first are last. A kingdom where the wealthy don't exploit the poor, but they give to the poor. A kingdom where the powerful don't abuse the weak, but they serve the weak. A kingdom where everything is turned upside down in terms of what it means to live the good life. And Jesus says, that's the good news. Can I get an amen for that? That that is the good news.
And Jesus says, if you want to experience it, I want you to experience it. If you want to experience it, you have to repent and believe, and I want you to experience it. And when you have experienced it, I want you to share it. Like that's the two the two-point message of the kingdom is that Jesus saying, I want you to experience this kingdom. This kingdom is how you were created to live. And when you have experienced it, I want you to share it. Jesus says in Luke 4, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news. He has anointed me to preach good news. The Spirit, he is saying, the Spirit of the Lord has compelled me to preach this good news. Anyone who has experienced something good, whatever it is, wants to share it. Like we just want to share stuff that is good whether it's an incredible new series that you're streaming that is totally binge-worthy and you want other people to see it and so you share it with them or a really good book that you have read that you want some other people to experience that or a really good song that you have heard or a really good podcast that you have listened to or a really good restaurant where you have eaten. I am on the receiving end of all kinds of evangelical work in my life. There are all kinds of evangelists in my life every week that are evangelizing me about the restaurants where they've eaten, the shows that they are watching, the books where they, that they have read, the songs that they have listened to, the podcasts. I can't take the evangelism that is taking place that is happening from people who are sharing the good news. They are sharing their euangelion. They are sharing their gospel of this restaurant or their gospel of this, this series on Netflix or whatever it is. Like we just want to share good news. When we experience something good, we want to share it. And Jesus says that he has been anointed to preach the good news. The Spirit has compelled him to share the good news with others. And as followers of Jesus, we too have been anointed to preach the good news. The Spirit of the Lord is compelling us to share the good news of the kingdom with others. So go and tell. Go and tell. Tell others the good news about a kingdom where the lost are found. Tell others about a kingdom where the broken are made whole. Tell others about a kingdom where those who have messed up, those who have screwed up are forgiven. Tell them the good news about a kingdom where the power of sin and the power of shame and the power of death have been defeated once and for all like share that good news and and so here's the thing if you have experienced the good news Jesus message to you is share the good news and if you have never experienced 
the good news of the kingdom. His message to you is repent and believe. Repent and believe. God, we give you thanks for good news. In a world where we are inundated constantly with bad news, where we are reminded of the brokenness of this world, where we experience that brokenness so often, even in our own lives, like we are a world in desperate need of good news. And so, Lord, for those of us who've experienced it, may we share it. And, Lord, for those of us who are here today, maybe maybe online, maybe here in the sanctuary, maybe we're out in the coffee shop, maybe in the great room, wherever it is, maybe in the hangar, wherever we are, if we are someone who has never experienced the good news of the kingdom, we pray that today is the day that we are willing to humble ourselves before you, repent, repent of our sins, experience your forgiveness, your grace, and put our faith, put our trust, put our belief in the good news of the kingdom. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to the Fairfax Church podcast. You can find more messages like this on our YouTube channel at Fairfax Church, or follow us here. If you were blessed by the message and resources provided, feel free to leave us a review.